Welcome to Prime Alpha's interview series, insights from industry practitioners discussing their journey and their discoveries. Hello, my name is Amanda Jogia, the CEO of Prime Alpha, an online ecosystem bringing together alternative opportunities and their investors. I would like to introduce Dr. Marat Moliboga. For two decades, he has been working on quantitative portfolio management and risk management of multi-CTA portfolios. Murat enjoys collaborating with academics and industry thought leaders on research papers that help institutional investors make better investment decisions. Welcome, Murat. Thank you so much, Amanda. Good um, to be here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you have such an interesting background. I would love for you to take us through your career journey and maybe even before that. Sounds good. As you will quickly notice, I have an accent. I grew up in Ukraine. Went to school in Moscow, where I got my degree in applied mathematics, and I joined Efficient as a research intern in August of 2001. And at first, I found myself very confused about futures markets because they did not make any sense to me. It just sounds crazy when you sell a contract that you don't have, or if you can buy a contract for a small fraction of its market value. So it took me actually a couple of months to wrap my head around those pretty simple concepts. And then during the first year, I worked on manager selection and portfolio construction. And I quickly discovered that most academic approaches just did not work. Uh, so I had to innovate and develop my own techniques that did work, uh, but it took me a while. Uh, and about a year later, I joined uh, Petra Intraday, a newly formed subsidiary of efficient capital that specialized in systematic intraday trading of futures contracts. However, uh, because Efficient was quickly growing, a few years later, I joined its research team. And over the years, I got involved in risk management and earned my PhD in finance. And I'm responsible for all aspects of quantitative portfolio management, research, and risk management. So interesting. So all the way from, did you say Russia? Ukraine, Russia, and then the U.S. Amazing. I'm an immigrant myself. I guess we're not first generation, right? You have to be born here to be first generation. We're zero generation. I think we are first generation. I think my kids are second generation. Oh, okay. Got it. Our kids have no idea. That is so true. That is so true. <laughs> <laughs> like talk about kind of shell shock, right? Coming to a new country and doing what you do. It's quite a shock. I agree. Last week, I went to Ukraine to visit my family there, and it's a different world. Nobody wears masks. People don't take COVID seriously. So I was just wearing my N95 mask and hoping that I would not get sick. So it was pretty crazy. Yeah. I remember, because I came here when I was eight, nine-ish, if I told myself when I was that age that I would be doing what I'm doing right now, I don't think I could even comprehend what that meant. Yes. Right? I think it's interesting because I think the career path is hard to imagine. I think you just start working and then over time you discover what you enjoy and you keep pursuing that. And often we have no idea where we're going to end up. <laughs> and I'm not sure what I'm going to end up in 20 years. So I think that's why I think it's called a career journey, right? Right. Exactly. I know we live many lives. <laughs> that's right. Just for the audience. What are managed futures and why should people care about it? That's great. If you think about investments at a high level, we know that a simple 60-40 portfolio of U.S. stocks and bonds has done extremely well over the last 40 years. I call them a match made in heaven because 
both assets have performed well individually, and the combination of the two has done even better because of the negative correlation between stocks and bonds. So for example, when stocks had significant losses during the global financial crisis, the bonds were able to offset a lot of those losses. So the question I have is, why even bother considering any other investments? And in my mind, if the next 40 years are going to be exactly what we've seen in the last 40 years, then a simple 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds is a great solution. But the problem is that a repeat over the last 40 years is extremely unlikely. So the question I have, what is so special about the last 40 years? And what we've seen is a pretty remarkable 40-year period of declining interest rates and low inflation. For example, 40 years ago, the three-month yield was around 8%, and today it's only five basis points. And today, the 30-year yield is only about 2%, which is pretty close to all-time lows. So if you look at that, those numbers, you just recognize that there's very little room for the bonds to continue going down as they have for the last 40 years. And also, inflation is quite high. If you've done any work on your house or your car for the last six months, or if you keep track of milk and bread prices like I do, you know that inflation is real. And just last month, the Social Security Administration made an adjustment, cost of living adjustment of 5.9%, which is the highest level since 1982. So the inflation that we're seeing is real. And I think we're at an inflection point. It is quite likely that the low inflation environment we have seen for the last 40 years is over, and we're entering a new era of much higher inflation. And if that is the case, then the bonds are more likely to lose rather than make money. And the prevailing negative relationship between stocks and bonds can quickly turn into a positive correlation. We might be entering a period in which stocks and bonds have low or even negative returns, and they no longer upset each other's losses. And we often take it for granted that stocks tend to go up. But if you look at Japan, Nikkei 225 is down since 1990. And I think it's possible that we might see a similar long-term period of declining equity returns in the US as well. And of course, investors have a lot of potential investments to consider. They have commodities, hedge funds, real estate, alternative risk premium, and many others. And some of them, such as commodities, are expected to perform well during inflationary periods, but most investments tend to struggle during periods of market distress. It is very difficult to find investments that perform well during inflation and market distress. And fortunately, managed futures is one of those investments. The markets are so interesting because it's like everything I learned in school, it's like throw it out the window. I'm like, things aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's yeah. And when particularly the central banks are actually involved, I think it really throws all the typical relationships and valuations. It's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. So this is a good segue into how would you define risk? Some risks are easy to see, but others are a bit hidden. What risk do you see in the markets that you are concerned about and may not be recognized by many investors? So at a high level, risk is any adverse event that can hurt investors' portfolios. 
And first, I'd like to talk about how we manage risk for our clients and then talk a little bit about macro risks that I think investors should be concerned about. And I want to mention that we consider it a privilege to manage money for our clients. I think they put a lot of trust in us and we work hard to manage their portfolios well and we take risk management very seriously. At a high level, we believe in diversification. We want to control the overall risk at the portfolio level and then limit the impact of any manager, strategy, or sector on the portfolio. We also don't believe in a magic risk measure that's supposed to capture all aspects of risk. Instead, we rely on several risk metrics such as margin, value at risk, notional exposure. And those measures are not perfect, but in aggregate, they provide a pretty reliable view of risk. Because we have many products and managers who trade hundreds of markets, we have built an automated risk monitoring system that tracks daily exposures for every product, every manager, and every market. We also carefully mitigate operational risk, the type of risk that comes from failure of processes, systems, or human errors. And we also try to minimize counterparty exposure by negotiating lower margins, sweeping access cash, and holding access cash in separate custody accounts in non-cash U.S. government-guaranteed instruments. So I'm very proud of the risk management framework that we've built efficient. Now, let me turn to the type of risk that I think investors should be concerned about. We think a lot about the type of macro risks that can disrupt financial markets, such as the global financial crisis of 2008 or a huge inflationary shock. And although we are fortunate because our portfolios tend to perform well during periods of market disruption, I believe those are some of the most important risks for investors to consider. In addition, I think investors are facing a very significant challenge of investing in a low-yield environment. Because expected returns are low and expected liabilities are high, investors are forced to take more risk and look for yield. At some point, we will see a market turnaround and investors will have to liquidate their positions. I think that's the hidden risk that everyone knows but ignores. I could tell that you're very passionate about what you do. What is it that you really love about your work? As I mentioned earlier, I wear two hats. I'm responsible for both risk and research. And earlier I talked about the risk management framework, but I also love working on research. I particularly enjoy collaborating with academics and industry thought leaders to answer challenging investment questions. For example, earlier this year, we wrote an article for Investments and Pensions Europe, where we came up with a new framework for investing in all yield environments. And we developed this framework in collaboration with Paul Kreiselmeyer from Various Investments, a consultant firm based in Seattle. So one of the key challenges of investing in all yield environments is that we might be close to an inflection point, as I mentioned earlier. With stocks at all-time highs and yields close to all-time lows, should our expectation of the future be based on what we've seen for the last 10 years or even 40 years? And the answer is probably no. So how can we solve this problem? Is there anything we can learn from a longer set of historical data that might be relevant for what can come down the road? So what we've done, we looked at three environments that investors are concerned about. 
spiking rates, gradually increasing interest rates, and coinciding periods of falling equities and rising rates. And we considered several asset classes, stocks, government bonds, corporate bonds and commodities, and also risk premia, carry, momentum, value, defensive, and trend. And for each of those three environments, we have found matching historical periods and investigate performance of the assets and risk premia during those periods. We have found that stocks and bonds don't perform well in the low yield environment, particularly during periods of falling equities and rising rates, of course. We also found that momentum value and carry tend to produce positive diversified returns while the defensive strategy tends to struggle. But most importantly, we found that commodities and trend perform particularly well in low yield environments. And I know that a lot of institutional investors are increasing their exposure to commodities, but I think they should also be thinking about increasing their exposure to trend following. I think a combination of commodities and trend would be a really good inflation offset strategy. That's so interesting. It's so intellectual what you do (laughs) because there's so many variables in it. And then to analyze that data is a very intellectual experience or exercise. So this is our Prime Alpha Visionary and Innovators series. And so I know one of Efficient Capital's core philosophies is around innovation. So what are some of the ways your firm is innovating? I love talking about innovation because it's so important for us. For over 20 years, we've been specializing in building customized multi manager solutions for institutional investors. And it's a really, really difficult task. It requires a lot of innovation. So when we think about innovation, we think about manager selection, portfolio construction, and even fees. And when people talk about fees, they often suggest that the best approach is to pay less. For us, fees are an opportunity to innovate. It's an opportunity to use the fees that investors are paying to generate additional value for them. And I know it sounds crazy, but for some of our products, we use the fees that clients pay using our patented fee structure to reduce their drawdowns or to boost returns when the stock market struggles. So we try to figure out how do we creatively use fees to add that value to investors better than they could do themselves. So another example of innovation is systematic portfolio management. A lot of firms rely on a typical risk-parity approach, and I think it's a pretty good approach. But we have found that imposing a top-down framework is beneficial for portfolios that include many different types of managers and many different types of investments. We have also found that volatility targeting can also improve performance through better diversification across time. And most of our products are managed using our top-down risk period approach with volatility targeting. If you think back in your career and thinking about that pivotal moment that you said, this is what you want to do. What was that moment for you? That is a great question. Earlier, I talked about how I discovered that most academic approaches did not work. And what I realized is that I have to come up with my own techniques. I have to come up with my own framework because it doesn't exist. And I realized that I had a lot of good ideas at the same time. I could not come up with good frameworks and approaches on my own. 
And I decided I'm going to actively work with others. I'm going to look for people in academia whom I respect. I'm going to look for opportunities to work with people from the industry because it is a difficult task to manage money for our clients. And I think if we work together, we're more likely to come up with something that's going to add value. And it gets me excited when people use some of our approaches because I think that if we help somebody manage portfolios better, everybody benefits. For example, my mother-in-law was a teacher in Illinois. And I often worry about her retirement because Illinois retirement system is severely underfunded. It's about 40% funded. And I worry about her retirement. So when I think about what I can do to help our clients, what I can do to help people in pension plan uh, base so they can manage their assets better. I recognize that my mother-in-law might have a better future. I recognize that my siblings might have a better future. We are in this very significant crisis and everybody needs to work together to make it happen. I can talk for a long time about the public pension crisis because it's just so significant and I think it's really hard to solve. And I think that if we can even contribute a little bit by coming up with some better approaches, by coming up with some nuggets that can help others make better investment decisions, if we can come up with some nuggets that can help investors allocate in this really challenging low-yield inflationary environment, I think also going to benefit from that. So I think that's what really drives me, and that's what gets me excited. And to me, just recognizing that we're trying to solve a bigger problem than just managing our own portfolio. I think that's what's the turning point for me in my career. That's amazing. You know, it just dawned on me. It's like people look at us in finance and we seem really dull. But if you really think about it, we are innovators. What you described is so creative. Like you created something out of nothing. And I think that's really awesome. Thank you. Well, what I think is remarkable is that we are much more likely to succeed if we recognize that it's not about our individual creativity and innovation. There are so many talented people out there, and I'm passionate about diversity. I'm passionate about inclusion because I think when you give voice to people who don't necessarily have it, everybody's going to benefit because sometimes those people without voice, they have some of the best ideas. So I think what I'm seeing happening in our industry, something I'm really excited about is the question of diversity and inclusion become more and more important. And actually, I'm working on a book about quantitative hedge fund investing, and it's pretty nerdy, but I'm going to have a large chapter that's dedicated to the topic of diversity and inclusion. And not necessarily because I think it's the right thing to do, but also because there's a lot of empirical evidence that shows that diversity and inclusion produce better performance. Female hedge fund managers tend to outperform male hedge fund managers. So I think when we allow ourselves to embrace diversity and inclusion, we actually are not going to do the right thing, but also we're going to perform better. I completely agree with you. <laughs> being a female, being a minority, I agree with you. I think giving voices to people is extremely powerful. And opportunity too. Like some people try so hard and yet these days it's so hard. Like it's harder to make it. 
it is much harder. So giving people that opportunity, just a little bit of edge can really make a difference. Completely agree. So I'm going to ask you our, my favorite question, which is what is your superpower and why? That is a very tough question. And I wish I had a simple answer. I think that one of my superpowers, I guess, is that I am allowing myself to change and to grow. And when I look back at my career 20 years ago, it was all about personal success, it was all about personal accomplishments. And I felt like I had all the answers and I felt like I knew what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. I had a lot of belief that I can read an academic book and it's going to have the answers. And I guess what I've discovered over time is that I don't always have the best answers and that sometimes it is humility that actually is going to help you come up with a better approach because if you allow yourself to accept that other people might have better approaches, then you are going to make better decisions, better decisions for yourself, better decisions for your clients. And it was not easy. I think that it was really humbling to recognize that I did not have all the answers, but I think that's by allowing myself to change and embrace my limitations, I think I've become a more effective investment professional. So it is my hope that I'll continue evolving. I'm going to continue learning. I'm going to continue getting stronger as an investment professional, but not just an individual, but a team player and team member who contributes to change that needs to happen in our industry. That's amazing. I love that. Thank you, Marat, for your time and your career journey and your story and teaching us about managed futures. If anyone in the audience would like to get a copy of their investing in the new environment, please let us know. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Prime Alpha's Visionaries and Innovators podcasts. As always, you can head over to primealpha.com to sign up to our email list, as well as check out our other podcasts. See you next time.